All right, this morning we are going to be in Matthew 24. If you have a Bible, open up to Matthew 24. If you don't, these folks walking down the aisle will give you one. Just raise your hand. They'll give you a, a Bible. Matthew 24. Matthew is the first book of the New Testament. There's four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. 66 books of the Bible. The first four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Um, and it's kind of cool because it's, they're, they're looking at an event that occurred from four different angles. So each is going to have a different perspective, right? So we're taking a look at Matthew. Matthew has a Jewish background. He was a Levite. Uh, he was involved with the Roman government. So he's going to give us governmental insights that you wouldn't get from the other um, versions of the Gospels. And, uh, but this one, Matthew 24, this one, you go 24, 25, and 26. So let me just set the scenario before I have you stand up for the reading of the word of the Lord. Uh, so in this version, in this picture, Jesus is in Jerusalem He's come up there, and we saw last week and the week before, he's picked a fight with the Pharisees, he's picked a fight with the Sadducees, he's picked a fight with the scribes, he's picked a fight with the Sanhedrin. He is, he's dominating them in the logic, and he's just hammering them, and they're all upset, and they've all conspired together. So the enemy of my enemy is my friend. Even though these folks don't get along, they're getting along together to try to get rid of Jesus, and they're going to kill him. And as we come to the conclusion of the book of Matthew, we're going to see Christ crucified. He's going to be beaten by the Romans uh, and by the temple guard. He's going to walk the Via Dolorosa, the way of pain. And as he approaches the, the, the cross, they're going to crucify him. And as they do that, uh, they're going to bury him, put him in the tomb. He's going to resurrect in three days. We're, we're coming right up to, to Good Friday and Easter. And by the way, on Good Friday here, uh, it's our service from noon to one. We got Bishop Huggins coming to do Good Friday. I am so excited about that. Uh, amen. Yeah, clap. All eight of you. Amen. So we're going to be going through the gospel account, coming through the story of Easter, which is a remarkable event. And this is what all of Christianity is based on, the empty tomb, that Christ beat death and, and sin and death by his, his death upon the cross to pay for the penalty of all mankind's sins. But here, now that they're conspiring together, Jesus, all of his disciples are looking at everyone whispering about killing him and the disciples are kind of getting close to him and they're, they're mesmerized by the temple and, and Herod's temple, for those of you who've been to Israel, it's remarkable. Stones that were tens of thousands of tons, a uh, hundred tons that were on top of each other, so well crafted that you can't take a pen knife between the two stones. They are so well, and they don't even know how they move them. This is Herod. He was a remarkable builder. And this temple is one of the wonders of the world. And they're, they're taking it in. They're looking at it. It is remarkable. And Jesus is, is pointing this out. The, the disciples are stunned by it. And he's going to say to them, that this, this temple will be destroyed. Not one stone shall be left upon another. It'd be like me taking you on a tour of Washington, D.C. and saying, okay, you see the White House, you see the, the, um, you know, the, the, the Capitol building, you see Washington's monument, and this is back when there was no gunpowder, no explosives, and I would say to you, every one of these stones will be taken down and there won't be one left upon another. And you'd look at me and think, right, right. Well, this is, this is really what Jesus is saying. These massive stones, not one will be on top of another. And, and he's going to share this. And, and in this, uh, chapter 24, 25, and 26, we come to a term that I've got to prepare you for. The term is called eschatology. Everyone say eschatology. eschatology. It sounds complicated. It's real simple. It just means a study of the end times, the study of the end of the world. You see, for time to exist, you have uh, your, your phone that has a clock on it. You have your watch has a you know, timepiece on it. There's a timepiece in the back that I never pay attention to. And all these things are, are keeping time. So for time to exist, there needs to be a beginning and an end. 
And you can see the beginning and an end on a timepiece when you look at a tombstone, the year of your birth, the year of your death, and a dash in between. That's the time you're on this earth. And then you step into eternity. Whether that eternity is with God or apart from God depends on your connection with the Lord. Where we get this Latin word called religion. Religion. All kinds of religions in the world, yes? Yes. There's only two. There's only two religions. See, the word religion in the Latin means relongari, to relink, to reconnect. So we are created in the image of God, but separated from God by our sin. How do we reconnect with God when we're distant from him? Our sin separates us. How do we reconnect? Well, there's God's way and there's man's way. Those are the two religions. God's way is man can't earn God's salvation. God gives it to man. He is just. And so the wages, the penalty for sin is death. He's going to be merciful and not give us death, but he still is just, so the penalty has to be paid. So what does he do? He lets his son take the penalty. He dies in our place, and his righteousness is put on our account, imputed to us. So you have this chasm down the middle. You have a righteous God, and you have a sinful man. How do we cross the chasm? Well, all the world's religions are, I'm going to try to be a better person. I'm not going to drink, smoke, or chew, or hang around with those who do, and that will get me reconnected, relinked, with this God or gods or however I perceive eternity. Whereas Christianity says, man can't span that chasm, it's too far. It's like you and I going out and saying, based on our righteousness, how good of a person I am, that's going to equate to my physical ability. And so we're all going to go out and and we're going to line up three people. We're going to have Mother Teresa and then we're going to have Billy Graham and we're going to have me. And then Jeffrey Dahmer. Four people. Good? Good. And, and based on our, our goodness, our righteousness, that equates to our physical ability. And all four of us are going to try to jump and touch the moon. Jeffrey Dahmer goes first, doesn't even get a half inch off the ground, as we know. I go next, I'm about three inches off the ground. Billy Graham goes, he's like 45 feet. Mother Teresa, she's like 160 feet, never before in the history of mankind. Unbelievable what she accomplished, but all four of us have something in common. Not one of us was remotely close to touching the moon. You understand that? His righteousness is not like ours. You may say, uh uh-uh. uh, I've been to this church. I know that pastor. I'm better than him. I'm way more righteous. And the thing is, time ends when your heart stops beating and you stand before God and give an accounting of your life. And you're going to look at God and you're going to say, I'm a righteous person. God says, Really? Yeah, I went to Calvary Chapel, God speak. I heard that pastor preach. I know all about his life. I am way better than him. God goes, you're, you're not kidding. You really are. You got him beat leaps and bounds. Problem, he's not the standard. My son is a standard and you've rejected him because you wanted to stand before me in your own righteousness, hoping we could be reconnected. But I've paid the penalty for your sin and you rejected what I gave you in hopes that you could attain it yourself. And there's none righteous, no, not one for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Everyone clear on that. And the wages of sin is death. So there's two things. There's heaven and there's hell. Heaven is in the presence of God, reconnected, relongari, religion, relinked. Hell is not connected to God for all eternity. Everything that heaven is, hell isn't. I wish I didn't have to speak on hell. I wish as a pastor it wasn't a doctrine of the Bible, but it is. And the person who spoke more on hell than anyone else was Jesus because he didn't want anyone to go there so much so that he died to give you access to heaven. And and the cross is a a big barrier in in front of hell and you got to step over the cross to get to hell and say, I don't need you. I'm going to do it on my own. 
And, and, and this is what separates Christianity from every religion in the world, two religions. You either try to earn your righteousness or you receive it as a gift. The Bible says, we've been saved by grace through faith. It's a gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast, which is so remarkable because nobody in the room can be arrogant and boast that they're more righteous than anyone else. And the, the ground at the foot of the cross is level and we all come in humility. And we recognize we need a savior. And that's what's so special. Now, when time wraps up, here's the thing. For some of us, time will wrap up this week. I hope not. But we don't know the day nor the hour. Our heart stops beating. For others of us, we may live another 30, 40, 50, 60, 70, 80 years. I know I'm on the tail end and I'm picking up speed. <laughs> but it's appointed once for a man to die. Now, there's a couple other options. One is you're raptured, which is a, an, a view of eschatology that, that some of the church holds, which is pre-trib, pre-millennial big words. Don't worry about it. I'll explain later. Others in the kingdom of God believe in what's called post-millennial, post-trib. All have assets, all have liabilities, depending on what your view is of the end times. I happen to be Calvary Chapel, we're pre-trib, pre-millennial, but I oftentimes when I'm teaching, I'm pan-trib, pan-millennial, which means I believe it'll all pan out in the end. (laughs) And so today, as we're looking at this, Jesus is going to go into the end times. And he gets apocalyptic in what he's talking about. And it's intense. I'm giving you a fair warning because we're going to read through all of Matthew 24. You're going to stand for the entire reading in a moment. I have to stand through the whole service, so I don't want any whining. But it is going to be a long reading, and it's going to be intense. You're going to be reading this. Some of you, for the very first time, you'll be going, what? This is crazy. Yeah, it is. It is. It's intense. It's like when we saw the SpaceX launch, and we wondered if it was North Korea. You remember that? We were all looking at it going, what, 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 It's going to be like that. And there won't be any, you know, explanation. It's going to get intense. And we're going to see in here what God wants for us, regardless of our eschatology. Whatever we believe of eschatology, there's an underlying theme that God wants us all to receive. And that's what we're going to focus on. So with that introduction, let's stand for the reading of the word of the Lord. That was exhausting. Here we go. Verse one, chapter 24. Then Jesus went out and departed from the temple and his disciples came to show him the buildings of the temple. They were marveling at it. Look at this building. It's crazy cool. And Jesus said to them, do you not see all these things? Assuredly, I say to you, not one stone shall be left upon another that shall not be thrown down. Now, as he sat on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately saying, tell us when will these things be and what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? And Jesus answered and said to them, take heed that no one deceives you for many will come in my name saying, I am the Christ and will deceive many. And you will hear of wars and rumors of wars. See that you are not troubled for all these things must come to pass, but the end is not yet for nation will rise against nation. We've seen what three, two world wars and more. Yeah. For nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. And there will be famines, pestilence. We've seen that earthquakes, seen that Mexico recently and various places. And all these are the beginning of sorrows or, or, you know, birth pains. Then they will deliver you up to tribulation and kill you. You look in the 1040 window and, and more Christians have been massacred in the last 40 years than in the combination of history up to this date. Then you will be delivered up to tribulation and kill you and you will be hated by all nations for my name's sake. And then many will be offended, will betray one another and will hate one another. Then many false prophets will rise up and deceive many. And because lawlessness will abound, the love of many will grow cold. But he who endures to the end shall be saved. 
And this gospel of the kingdom will be preached in all the world as witness to all the nations. And then the end will come. Therefore, when you see the abomination of desolation uh, spoken of by Daniel, the prophet standing in the holy place, whoever reads, let him understand. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains and let him who is on the roof or the housetop not go down to take anything out of his house and let him who is in the field not go back to get his clothes. But woe to those who are pregnant and to those who are nursing babes in those days and pray that your flight may not be in winter or on the Sabbath for then there will be great tribulation such as not been seen as not been since the beginning of the world until this time. No, nor shall ever be. And unless those days were shortened, no flesh would be saved. But for the elect's sake, those days will be shortened. Then if anyone says to you, look, here is the Christ or there, do not believe it. For false Christ or antichrist and false prophets will rise and show great signs and wonders to deceive, if possible, even the elect. See, I've told you beforehand. Now, therefore, with all this, I want you to know what all that's there for. If they say to you, look, he is in the desert, do not go out or look, he's in the inner rooms. Don't believe it. For as the lightning comes from the east and flashes to the west, so also will the coming of the Son of Man be. For wherever the carcass is, there the eagles or buzzers will be gathered together. Immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light. The stars will fall from heaven and the powers of heaven will be shaken. Then the sign of the Son of Man will appear in heaven and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory and he will send his angels with a great sound of a trumpet and they will gather together his elect from the four winds and from the end of heaven to the other. Now learn this parable from the fig tree. When its branches has already become tender and puts forth leaves, you know that summer is near. So you also, when you see all these things, know that it is near at the doors. Assuredly, I say to you, this generation will by no means pass away till all these things take place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my word will by no means pass away. But of that day and hour, no one knows. Let me repeat that. But of that day and hour, no one knows. Let me repeat that. But of that day and hour, no one knows. He goes further. Not even the angels of heaven He says in another portion, not even I myself, but only my father. But as the days of Noah were, so also will the coming of the son of man be. For as in the days before the flood, there were eating and drinking, marrying and given in marriage until the day that Noah entered the ark and did not know until the flood came and took them all away. So also will the coming of the son of man be. Then two men will be in the field. One will be taken and the other left. Two women will be grinding at the mill. One will be taken. The other left. This is where pre-trib folks talk about a rapture raptured into heaven. Watch therefore, for you do not know what hour your Lord is coming, but know this, but know this, but know this, that if the master of the house had known what hour the thief would come, he would have watched and not allowed his house to be broken into. Therefore you also be ready. Therefore you also be ready for the son of man is coming in an hour. You do not expect who then is a faithful and wise servant whom his master made ruler over his household to give them food in due season. Blessed is that servant whom his master, when he comes, will find so doing. Assuredly, I say to you that it will, that he will make him ruler over all his goods. But if that evil servant says in his heart, my master is delaying his coming and begins to beat his fellow servants and to eat and drink with drunkards, the master of that servant will come on that day when he is not looking for him and at an hour that he is not aware of and will cut him in two and appoint him his portion with the hypocrites, which Jesus talked about last week. And there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. God bless you. Have a wonderful week.
Lord, heavy, heavy, heavy passage, but true. And Holy Spirit, would you lead us into an understanding of this by the tenderness of your voice, that we would grasp it and apply it and be that faithful servant, that faithful and wise servant whom his master made ruler over the household, that he was busy when his master returned. And so, Lord, I pray that you would apply that to our lives and that we wouldn't speak of the delay of your coming and be weary and apathetic. And so, Lord, I pray by this word that you've given us today, you'd minister to every heart. And we thank you, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, relax. This, um, this passage of scripture is interesting because when Jesus said, you see this temple, not one stone will be left upon another. And the disciples looked at it and they marveled. And there's no way it could happen. And it, by 70 AD, Titus Vespasian, the Roman ruler, um, had called for the destruction of the temple. The Romans went in. They started to sack the temple. Uh, it was just a drunken revelry. They were going crazy. The, and one Roman soldier threw a torch into the temple, began to burn. The inside of the temple with the wood fixtures started to burn. And the gold and the silver, as we calculated by Josephus, there was over $10 million today's um, mindset of money in silver alone, let alone the gold that was in the temple. And it begins to burn and all this precious metal begins to melt and seep into the cracks and crevices of these massive, you know, where you couldn't fit a pen knife. All of a sudden the metal is making it into the cracks and crevices of these stones that Herod put together and the Romans got plunder. And so they thought, you know what, let's turn these stones apart and get down to that gold. So they're pulling them apart and pulling out the gold and trying to find the silver. And they turned every stone upside down so that when you go to Israel today, you're looking saying, how in the world did this this happened. And they did it without explosives, without dynamite, without TNT, just, you know, levers and pulleys and fulcrums and pulling every stone apart and the entire temple done by 70 AD. Now, many in the body of Christ believe 70 AD was the, the return of Christ. And, and, and they looked at that and they thought, well, he's got another coming. And this one, the only way he's going to come back again is we have to establish his kingdom on the earth. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And so their idea is we've got to establish his kingdom on the earth. And so that he would be welcome into this, this world that would be honoring him by his, his laws and statutes. And so that, uh, that eschatology, every eschatology comes with an asset and a liability. The asset for post-trib, post-millennial is setting up his kingdom on the earth is, uh, our founders were, were post-trib, post-millennial, and they, they set up uh, schools of higher learning like Princeton and Yale and Harvard, and they wanted to equip ministers to preach the gospel, and they, they set up a system of government as they looked at the nature of man, and they did a three branches of government, and they kept the sovereign outside of the government with we the people, and they had a direct representation with the legislature, and then the, the president could only be appointed by electoral college of the legislators that were elected by the people, and then the president would appoint the judicial system, uh, which the president was elected by the Electoral College, which the legislature was appointed by the people. So we, the people, understanding that men are created equal, and it's a representative form of government, so there wouldn't be an oligarchy or slaves and, and serfs uh, with, with a king, but we would all operate with this freedom to enjoy what God had designed for us, that all men are created equal, endowed by their creator with certain inalienable rights. Fascinating what they set up. And, and they, oh boy, did they have their weaknesses and their shortcomings, and we understand all that, but they set up a form of government never before equaled in the history of the world. And in this little country that represents in the history of the world less than 5% of the total population of the earth is responsible for no, more symphonies and Nobel Peace Prizes and co co uh, patent copies and industrial revolution and wealth creation than any other government in the history of the world. Fascinating. And, and, and with that, 
came kind of a decline in churches because when you're post-millennial, post-trib, and you're all about all that stuff, you start not preaching the gospel, which is salvation and relationship with the Lord and things like that. And, and so it, it kind of waned and the church started to die. Along in the scene in the 1800s comes this eschatology of pre-trib, pre-millennial, which there's a rapture and we're going to be taken out before the millennial reign of Christ and we don't have to usher it in and we're not going to have to go through the tribulation and, and we're not going to have to go through the tribulation in the six and a half years, however it works, seven years. We're going to be left out of that. And so what we have to do is we got to get as many people saved before the rapture comes. And so Calvary Chapel started in 1967 with a pre-millennial mindset. And we wanted to preach the gospel and get people saved. And we think salvation is raising your hand to receive Jesus, which it is. It's, it's an act of faith. And so we start presenting the gospel that what I just declared to you this morning about, you know, that you receive this free gift of salvation and Christ's righteousness is put on your account. And you're relinked to the father. Remember, remember that? Hello, work with me. Okay, good. And so that's what we're doing. And, and Calvary Chapel started in 1967 in California. And we, we were doing that verse by verse, chapter by chapter, book by book, teaching the gospel. And we saw 10,000% growth in 50 years, uh, 51 years now, it's 2018. 51 years of teaching. And there's 1,600 Calvary Chapels around the world. At one point, three of the largest churches in, in the United States were Calvary Chapels. We do the Harvest Crusades with Greg Laurie, Somebody Love You Crusades. We preach the gospel. And that's not transfer growth, that's conversion growth. They have given their heart to the Lord. South of Van Nuys, going towards San Diego, there's 400 Calvary chapels south of Van Nuys. The lion's share of those 1,600 churches are in California. But the one thing that we don't do at Calvary Chapel, we teach the word, we preach the gospel, but we don't get involved in cultural issues like government. Whereas the post-trib, post-millennialists got involved in government and gave us a really neat form of government, we're kind of looking like, you know, the rapture's coming and we're polishing brass on the Titanic. Let's get everyone out before it sinks. Now, that's a great asset because you see people come to Christ in droves. But we've been doing this for 51 years, and here's the result. You see, in 1967, California had the fifth or sixth largest GDP. We had a secondary school system. It was the envy of the world. Our water delivery system, we produced more cotton than the entire South combined. It was an amazing state. I was born here in 64. So 51 years preaching the gospel, but staying out of government. Let's see where we are today in the power of the gospel of 10,000% growth. We no longer have the fifth or sixth. We're seventh or eighth. We lead the nation in sales tax, gas tax, income tax, corporate tax. We lead the nation in debt. You take the next four largest states, combine their debt, doesn't equal the debt of California. We're the authors of no-fault divorce and transgender bathroom bills, and we lead the nation. Oh, by the way, we spend more money than most states in education, yet our schools are in the bottom 10 of 50, so we're 40 and below. And we lead the nation in abortion. Boy, that's a powerful gospel. That's an indictment on the church. Now, I love being in Calvary Chapel, and I love the eschatology we hold to, but we look at this, and the part of this is, okay, we got our eschatology down, but Jesus said, faithful is the man who is busy when his master returns. And, the, and, and he calls this servant wicked. And here's what's interesting. Second Peter chapter 3, Peter writes, you must understand that in the last days, scoffers will come, scoffing and following their own evil desires, they will say, where is this coming? He promised ever since our fathers died, everything goes on as it has since the beginning of creation. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief. The heavens will disappear with a roar. The elements will be destroyed by fire and the earth and everything in it will be laid bare. Second Peter chapter three. And I look at this and I think, I like what this author says. He says, these kinds of Christians believe they can partake of the Bible the way they partake of a buffet 
They put on their plate only the parts they really find appealing and ignore the rest. I mean, if we're in Vegas and we're going through the buffet, I'm going to skip the liver and go for the bacon, right? Yes? And Jesus describes what happens with this kind of a servant. He says in Matthew 24, suppose that that servant is wicked and says to himself, my master is staying away a long time. And he then begins to beat his fellow servants and to eat and drink with drunkards. The master of that servant will come on a day when he does not expect him in an hour he is not aware of. And he will cut him to pieces and assign him the place with the hypocrites where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And notice the characteristics of the wicked servant. Notice the characteristics of the wicked servant first. He's become convinced that his master may not be coming back. So he says to himself, my master is staying away a long time. And we've been preaching the return of Christ for over 2000 years. And most of the church is bored about teaching it. But the greatest revivals in the history of the world have always come from those who believed in the soon return of Christ. But what happens is we think that the master is not coming back and we think he's delaying his coming. So we live, listen, we live selfishly. We just kind of give up on his precepts and his admonitions and his laws and we begin to mistreat other servants one of the most prejudiced places in the world in the 60s was a church we begin to mistreat other servants who proclaim the name of christ we begin hanging out with worldly people our bad theology leads to bad company and bad behavior And I say this, your theology about Jesus will dictate how you live your life. Theos, God, ology, study of. Your theology about Jesus will dictate how you live your life. If you think his return and his judgment are imminent, you will live a holy life. It'll be important to you. Less than 14% of people read their Bible, and yet God wants to speak to us every day. That's why Jesus said, no one knows the day or the hour, not even the angels in heaven, nor the son, but only the father. As it was in the days of Noah, so it will be in the coming of the son of man. For in the days before the flood, people were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage up to the day that Noah entered the ark. They knew nothing about what would happen until the flood came and took them all away. That's how it will be in the coming of the son of man. Did Noah believe the flood was imminent? You bet he did. He got mocked and, and, and ridiculed and he was a preacher of righteousness for a hundred years and he built an ark where there was no water and everyone mocked him and made him the laughing stock of the world. Did Noah think the rains would come at any moment? Yes, he did. That's why he spent every waking moment building that ark like he was building his family. Did anyone else think the flood was coming? Nope. Did they believe God? Nope. They spent their time partying going after the baubles and the trinkets of the world, not concerned with God's precepts and commandments or applying them to culture or changing culture. They just adapted to culture. They spent their time with the scoffers and with the people who mocked Noah because it was more convenient to be part of that than engaging in being the one mocked at. So because they didn't think God would do what he promised, their bad theology led them to bad behavior. They hung around with the wrong people and you, you, you assimilate with those you hang around with. And when judgment came, they perished and they lost everything. But Noah didn't. Noah believed God. He knew that it was coming down to judgment. He had prepared for it for over 100 years. His whole family was saved. He worked to make sure that that was true. He took God seriously. 
He's like the good servant that Jesus speaks of in Matthew 24, who then is the faithful and wise servant whom the master has put in charge of the servants in his household to give them their food at the proper time. It will be good for that servant whose master finds him doing so when he returns. I tell you the truth, he will put him in charge of all of his possessions. The faithful and wise servant is the one who took his master seriously. Pay attention. The faithful and wise servant is the one who took his master seriously and did the things he knew would please him. You can't tell someone who takes the promise of the second coming seriously. They do the best they can to do what God wants them to do. This is, this is their heart. You can tell someone who takes the second coming seriously. They do their best to do what God wants. I've met folks like that. I pray that I'm one of those people. But you know, the struggle for us today is we really don't believe he's coming back. If we did, we'd be about our father's business. We don't really want to engage in culture. We don't want to push things. We don't want to implement his precepts in every aspect of the cultures of the world. We just kind of want to manage the decline of Western civilization and just maybe if he's coming back, we might catch him. And that's what's called the Antichrist. It, it, it even dece- the Antichrist even deceives the elect, those that are in the church. We just become numb, like the proverbial f- frog in the pot of water, and you just turn it up a degree and it boils to death and doesn't even know. We just become inebriated and inoculated, and we become apathetic. You can see the spirit of Antichrist in Marxism and in socialism and in fascism and in Islam and in the media. You can't pray before a football game. No nativity scenes at Christmas, etc. And we just stand by and we take it. We just take it. We don't contend. We don't fight. We don't push. We just let them take it. You can teach anything you want in school, but not Jesus. And we take it. Tell us anything in the church. Give us lattes, double espressos. Tell us about our marriages, about our businesses, about our relationships, about our finances. Tell us anything but the cross, sin, atonement, the blood of Jesus, his return in power, his blood-bought bride. Don't talk about that because it's offensive. But tell me about my finances. Give me a latte. Tell me about my business and relationships and 10 easy steps on a happy life. And we take it. It makes me sad. The scripture says in 1 Timothy 4, pay close attention to yourself and to your teaching, Rob. It's a pastoral epistle. I don't take that lightly. Why were we created and why are we here? And I listened to the church declare what was made in 1646 by Scottish theologians in the Westminster Shorter Catechism when they say, what is the chief aim of man? And they say, man's chief aim is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. I don't buy it. Genesis says it were to tend the garden, we're to have dominion. And then we don't do that. We just don't do it. Why is the church here? To take up oxygen? That I tickle your ears and blow sunshine your way? I tell you, I have a gift of preaching a church down to a manageable size, but I will tell you why the church is here. Ephesians 4 says, so Christ himself gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors, the teachers to equip his people for works of service. You work with your mind and your heart and your hands and you engage in culture. You don't sit back and take it. Feed my sheep, Jesus said. I take that seriously. 
That's John 21, 17. Jesus said, feed my sheep. 65% or two out of three Christians in America say they are hungry for more information on what the Bible teaches in relation to current and cultural and political issues. And the shepherds would do well to listen. I'll tell you what, we don't want to talk about Supreme Court decisions striking down traditional marriage. We don't want to talk about advancing homosexuality, government schools teaching sex education that contradicts what the Bible says, punishing students for living out their faith in schools. We just take it. Pushing transgenderism, college professors and universities that make it their mission to secularize Christian students. 70% of the kids graduating from our youth ministries going into college will abandon their faith. And we just take it. Entertainment that normalizes homosexuality, cohabitation, casual sex, attacks on Christian values, highlighting dysfunctional families, we take it. We don't, we don't set it, we take it. Christian leaders have been watchmen of God and they were told what to do. But how many have stood up and sounded an alarm and warned of these specific dangers? You know, the problem is when you stand up and you sound an alarm, people stop coming to your church. I, I want to show you this. Is the Bible accurate in all the principles it teaches? Did Jesus live a sinless life on the earth? Yes or no? Does absolute moral truth exist? Is Satan real or imaginary being? Can a person earn their way into heaven by doing good works? Is God the all-knowing, all-powerful creator of the world who still rules the universe today? Okay, that's what the scriptures say, and you, you pass the test. These are some of the most basic teachings of the Bible, but Barna found that over 70% of the churches reject such elemental Christian tenets. The 100,000 or so churches that still embrace these biblical teachings won't preach what the Bible says about the issues out of fear and in the backlash that they may face. People just don't want to go to church. I, I, I want to talk about my finances, business relationships. I want to talk about you know my future spouse. I really don't want to get into this. I get it. I get it. But here's what's interesting. On the good side, over 90% of theologically conservative pastors agree that the Bible addresses specific issues facing Christians today, such as abortion, same-sex marriage, gambling, immigration, and many others. But on the bad side, only 10% of these pastors are willing to address these issues. Why? They're concerned about being seen as political, not wanting to risk the loss of numbers of people or donations, or are concerned about the status of the church's nonprofit designation, Conservative churches have a biblical mandate to teach these things, but are choosing to ignore the opportunity in favor of remaining safe. I get it. I get it. On the good side, at least 70% of congregants in theologically conservative churches say there are 14 topics they want their pastors to address. So I'm looking at you and I'm going, thank you. I would like to talk about those. And here's what you guys did when you were polled. You said, I want to talk about abortion. I want to talk about religious persecution, poverty, how it affects personal church and government roles cultural restoration, sexual identity, same-sex marriage, Israel, Christian heritage, the proper role of government, bioethics, self-governance, the church and politics, Islam, the media. I like this one, senior citizens and the end-of-life issues because I'm looking at church and I'm thinking that's become more important for us. (laughs) On the bad side, despite the extremely high desire of parishioners to hear about these issues from the pulpit, only 6% of pastors addressed as many as six topics and only half even addressed the two easiest ones of abortion and same-sex marriage. And the number of pastors addressing issues, such topics has fallen by half since 2014. On the good side, pastors recognize the need to track results to see if what they are doing is working. I like that. 
But on the bad side, when theologically conservative pastors were asked about how they determine the success of their churches, their top five measurements were the worship service attendance, dollars donated, number of programs offered, number of staff people hired, and the square footage of the facilities, budgets, baptisms, and... Yeah, budgets, baptisms, and things. Oh, buildings. Budgets, baptisms, and buildings. Nickels, noses, and something, I forget. We think that's a successful church. And as I said earlier, I really do have a gift of preaching a church down to a manageable size because I'm not in charge of you coming, and I'm not in charge of you leaving. I'm just faithful to do what I'm called to do. And you're going to like it, and you're not going to like it, I get it. But if you want to see a cultural transformation of where you live... You have to do more than just sit there. Amen. It, it's, it's tending the garden. Works of service. The classic line used by many pastors not addressing biblical issues such as the unborn life and man, woman, marriage, politics, etc. is, I just preach Jesus and I just preach the gospel. I hear that all the time. And, and, I, and this is the implication. When they tell me this, the, the implication is that if you preach biblical truths that apply to daily personal and national life, you are not preaching Jesus. Give me a break. I, with all my heart, believe that preaching the gospel is the most important thing. But wouldn't the protection of a government that protects the preaching of that gospel be pretty important as well? Yes. 85 cents of every dollar in evangelism comes from the United States. Why? Because we have a constitutional republic where all men are created equal and endowed by their creator. Where did they get those ideas? From the Bible. It is a wonderful form of government we're losing because we have no clue. Acts of service and participating and pushing the cultural understanding of these mountains are acts of service. To preach Jesus is fine, but also preach what he preached, the application of biblical truth to every aspect of life including national life. I love this. And you want to know what my eschatology is? You want me to really go into Matthew 24? You want me to really hammer it down? I'm going to give you my eschatology. And it's, it's summed up. Oh, I love this. It's summed up by an American colonist. He was a colonel. And I'm going to show you what he said. His name was Colonel... Abraham Davenport, New England's dark day. This is when they thought that the apocalypse was coming. They thought it was the end of time. You can read it in history books. It was on May 19th, 1780. It was so dark from Canada all the way down to New Jersey. You couldn't see your hand in front of your face and everyone thought they were going to die and Jesus was coming and they thought it was the end of the world. It's like the X rocket, right? Everyone, oh God. It was worse though. No explanation and it went on for a day and a half. So it says, refers to an event that occurred May 19, 1780 when an unusually darkening of the day sky was observed that extended from Canada to New Jersey. The darkness was so complete that candles were required from noon on. This extraordinary darkness came on between the hours of 10 and 11 a.m. and continued till the middle of the next night. It was so dark you couldn't see your hand in front of your face. And they said there was a number of things. And you can read about it. They wrote poems about it. I mean, it affected the entire eastern seaboard. And the Connecticut legislature was meeting. And and Colonel Abraham Davenport was in this meeting. And they said, you know, the end of the world is here. We're all in trouble. And here's the dude right here. He lived from 1715 to 1789. He's, just, he, he's, he's been there, done that, got the t-shirt. He didn't care. And he loves the Lord, and he's totally committed to God's word. And, and they, they, this ominent, uh, you know, ominous end of the world's coming. And they wanted to cancel the legislature. And this was his quote, and it was in a poem from a direct quote from his. This is what he said. I am against adjournment. The day of judgment is either approaching or it is not. If it is not, 
There's no cause for an adjournment. If it is, I choose to be found doing my duty. I wish, therefore, the candles may be brought. Look, whatever your view of the end is, all I know this is the faithful steward will be found doing what his father told him to do when he comes. And these are acts of service. And if you're tired of the situation in our state and our nation and the world, then roll up your sleeves and get to work. I was up in Sacramento Monday and Tuesday. This is a state that everyone's leaving because they said it's a lost cause. I, I love tasks so big that the only way it's going to change is God has to intervene. That's what I love about California. Only God can fix this mess. Can I get an amen? So I went up to Sacramento for Church United, and it's being head up by a man who was a homosexual, came out of the homosexual lifestyle, is married and has three kids. His name's Jim Doman, the, the least likely guy to be leading a group of pastors. Seriously. And he's telling him, he says, this is my sin of choice and you got to pray for me. And we're like, that's uncomfortable. <laughs> and and, and it, what's, what's, what's even more remarkable, over 100 pastors went up there and they're up at the Capitol and we're being taught, and I was one of the speakers, and I'm the minority. It was all Hispanics and black. I'm the minority. And they're listening to me, and I'm talking. And they, I don't know what their affiliation is politically, Democrat, Republican, Independent. It's irrelevant to me. I'm talking about engaging in the process with biblical concepts. And they're, by, they're, they're in, and they're moved by it. Over 100 pastors moved by it. And I'm going to show you in a minute a video of us. in the. This is a, a, a smaller group of the pastors. The rest of them came at the second. Do you have it? This is in the rotunda of the Capitol. Crank it so they can hear it. Watch this. in that capital like that in a long time. They sang Amazing Grace. We prayed in the rotunda of the capital. They went and met with their assembly members and their state senators and they prayed with them. And you know what's amazing about all this? One man in particular heard me speak. His name is Nets Gomez. He's a pastor of a church of 1600, Hispanic. He actually immigrated from Mexico, came to the United States to be a missionary to the United States from Mexico. He became a United States citizen and, and he's, he's overseeing this church. He has the largest Spanish radio station, uh, program, Nueva Vida. It, everyone loves him. He comes up and he says, I want to do what you did. I want to run for office. What do I do? I said, let's meet Friday. He said, okay. And so I drove to Northridge Friday and he said he wanted to meet a restaurant. I went in and I got there before he did. I gave the waitress my card and I said, he's going to want to pay. I'm paying. And you understand? She goes, I understand. And he comes in with his entire staff. And their spouses. <laughs> and they were hungry. And the waitress looks at me. I said, no, go with it. He sits down, and I'm the only white man at the table. He says, I want to introduce you to my staff. And this one's from Venezuela, and this one's from Colombia, and this one's from El Salvador, and this one's from Guatemala. And he goes down the line. 
And the one from Venezuela has been here four months. His fiance and his entire family is trapped in that cesspool in Venezuela. Once was the fourth greatest nation in the Western Hemisphere and is now starving to death. And he can't get his family out. And I listened to them all in their, their English with, with accent and broken all the way around. They love the Lord. They want to know what to do. We don't want to bring what we, we left. We want, we want to know what to do and what this is about here. And I shared with them and I told them what their pastor was about to engage in, how he was going to show these acts of service and how he was going to lead the way in this incorporating these truths into the culture of the world. And I said, I want to tell you something. I don't care if all of California speaks Spanish and is all Hispanic as long as they are observing the Constitutional Republic and the First Amendment and the freedom of religion that the gospel would be preached and people would be set free. Yes. Amen. 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 Now, a lot of you don't want to speak Spanish because you don't know it. But my point is this, the most unlikely people are the ones that are going to make a difference. And I look at our church and we've spearheaded a move of God's spirit. And these are acts of service. And I don't care what your eschatology is. There's work to be done. Yes. And when I saw Nets and he told me about this, I was so touched. I left there in tears because of the expense of the bill, but also... <laughs> God is faithful, and that man's going to do an amazing work of the Lord. And I look at all of you, and I just simply say, it's time. If we really expect God's return, and we're going to give an accounting of our life, it's about time we get busy, and the master finds us faithful when he comes. And there's work to be done. And there's no room for apathy, and you don't, you don't adapt or acclimate. You set culture. Roll up your sleeves with acts of good service, and see what, what corner of the stretcher you're going to be carrying and do it. And that's, that's my eschatology.